From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Battleground Ballot Box. I'm Stephen Fowler. 30 years ago, then-Democratic presidential nominee Bill Clinton had three signs on the wall of his campaign office to focus his message. Don't forget health care, change versus more of the same, and... It's the economy, stupid. The maxims of Democratic strategist James Carville have loomed large through wars and recessions, good times and bad, and the economy has led to great gains and major losses for both parties during critical elections. The 2022 midterms in Georgia are no different, as candidates for governor and Senate pitch their vision for what's going well and what needs improving. At the state level, Governor Brian Kemp is riding high on record surpluses, unemployment at an all-time low, and new business announcements at a steady pace. And Senator Raphael Warnock just cast one of the deciding votes on the Federal Inflation Reduction Act and has championed measures to fix a flagging national economy that some say could be headed for a recession. On this week's episode, we look at conflicting claims about the economy and its impact on Georgia's election. Depending on who you ask, the economy is doing great, or it's terrible. It's Democrats' fault for this, or Republicans' fault for that. It can be confusing at best and misleading at worst to talk about, quote, the economy right now, which can mean everything from gas prices and grocery costs to state budget surpluses and participation in the labor force. But that's not stopping politicians running for key offices this year from using the economy as a cornerstone of their campaigns, either to stay in office like Governor Brian Kemp and Senator Raphael Warnock, or to unseat the incumbents like Stacey Abrams and Herschel Walker are seeking to do. Looking at polling data so far, Kemp's message of a strong state economy is resonating with Georgia voters, and somewhat undercutting Walker's assertions that everything is bad nationally. And Abrams has delivered a sweeping economic policy address of her own, calling for things like free technical college and expanded financial aid paid for by allowing gambling, while Warnock is currently doing a victory lap after several pieces of legislation he championed made it into the Inflation Reduction Act that passed the Senate last week. So let's sort our way through what Georgia's top political candidates are saying about their different parts of the economy and how it's shaping the road to November. I asked Jim Hobart, a Republican pollster with public opinion strategies, to explain how Republicans are generally approaching the economy. I think that you you can look at it from in in two directions, right? Um, For for a federal candidate, a a Republican federal candidate is essentially running to be one thing, and that's a check and balance on Joe Biden and his administration. And so they want to show that they will be a check and balance on what they would say are economic policies that have not been good for the country that Joe Biden, Democratic leadership, have passed over the last 18 months or so. But locally speaking, Republican governors, especially incumbents like Kemp, are running on their records in office, especially post-COVID. And I think what you saw is that obviously um, governors in certain states, Governor Kemp among them, took very different approaches to the way they handled the the pandemic and, and thus how that handling affected the economy of an individual state. So I think more so this year than in most years, it is very viable for governors like Governor Kemp to say, hey, I did things differently and our state is benefiting because of that and point very clearly to what he did differently. Whereas if you're a federal candidate, you're more focused 
on, hey, I'm going to go and, and be a check and balance. Brian Kemp is the only incumbent Republican governor in a competitive race this year, and he's uniquely positioned to point to the past four years of Georgia's economy to bolster his case to have four more years in the governor's mansion. During the pandemic, Kemp caught a lot of heat from all sides for his decision to reopen the state's economy earlier than many other states and to ease pandemic restrictions to, quote, protect the lives and livelihoods of Georgians. But Hobart says the last two years of economic data in the state can give the governor some vindication. Because he did things so differently, you know, differently to the extent that even members of his own party, the president most notably, were speaking out against him. I think it's easier for him to make the case that, hey, the Georgia economy is different than the national economy. And it's because of, of these things that I did. And so I, I think that while in ordinary circumstances, it's a challenge to kind of bifurcate the two messages. It's like, hey, I know you're feeling the pain of inflation and what's going on with the national economy. But because of what I've done, Georgia's attracting all these new companies. Georgia's unemployment is low. Things are much better here than they are in other states. As you might have heard a time or two, Georgia leaders regularly tout the state as, quote, number one to do business. The state has one of the busiest ports in the country and is a mecca for the film industry and other sectors. Major economic development projects like electric vehicle maker Rivian and Hyundai building manufacturing facilities in Georgia and other companies investing in all parts of the state, especially rural Georgia. The state has also amassed more than $10 billion in surplus over the last two fiscal years. Plus, the state's unemployment rate is at an all-time low, just like we're seeing across the country. So Kemp, in a recent speech in McDonough, prefaced the tax on the national economy by touting what he's overseen in Georgia. This team has put our state on a path to greater economic opportunity for all who call the Peach State home. We brought good-paying jobs to every corner of Georgia, landed the largest economic development deals in our state's history, passed the biggest income tax cut on record, and kept government out of your way and out of your pocket. Georgia has been named the best state for business for eight years running, boasts one of the busiest ports in the country, and is home to some of the best Fortune 500 companies, and as you see here today, small-town businesses alike. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the state, the most Georgians ever working, and the fewest Georgians on the unemployment roll since 2001. And when it mattered most over the last two years during the pandemic, we did not shy away from making tough decisions. We protected both lives and livelihoods. We stood with small business owners who wanted to fight for that American dream and gave hardworking Georgians the opportunity to put food on their table for their families. The governor has also extended a suspension of the state gas tax into September, which has led Georgia to have some of the lowest prices in the country as prices overall have fallen in recent weeks. And yet, at the same time Kemp is touting Georgia's economy, he also says thanks to Democrats and President Joe Biden, the national economy is terrible. Standing here today, there is no doubt that the Biden administration's runaway spending and disastrous policies have put the future of countless families in Georgia in jeopardy. Time and time after again, Joe Biden and his allies ignored the warnings from economists and experts that their agenda would lead to higher inflation and supply chain disruptions. 
Time after time, they chose to undercut domestic energy production in favor of buying more foreign oil. Instead of listening to the American people, Joe Biden and the liberal Democrat supporters of his pandered to the far-left extremists and billionaire donors who fund them. As a result, just as Georgians are getting their feet back under them after the pandemic, we now have 40-year high inflation, pain at the gas pump, and an economic recession. To add insult to injury, Joe Biden can't even be honest with the American people. Last year, they told us inflation was temporary. Now they're telling us the recession you're feeling every single day is just the economy in transition. Well, I don't need Joe Biden and his pals telling me when Georgians are hurting. Because I know they are. Of course, gas prices and other supply issues are affected by multiple things, including the war in Ukraine, and cause and effect is not that simple to lay blame. So how can Georgians be hurting under Democrats and see record prosperity because of Republicans? The short answer, politics. The longer answer, after this break. Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info This is Battleground Ballot Box. I'm Stephen Fowler, and we're talking about how Georgia's top candidates for Senate and governor are navigating the economy. There are a lot of issues that will drive voters to the polls this year, from abortion rights to election rules to being unhappy with the overall direction the country is heading. Dr. Andra Gillespie, a political science professor at Emory University, says how people feel the economy is doing is one of the more important factors. I think that there's a case to be made for perceptions of the economy having an indirect effect on um, vote outcomes, uh, because those midterm primary models do incorporate the president's uh, uh, approval rating. Um, and so uh, if you have an unpopular president who does not, uh, isn't perceived as being um, a good steward of the economy, then that's not going to help his party, um, you know, in a midterm election. Like we heard from a Republican pollster earlier, Gillespie agrees that Kemp has an easier job convincing voters that local economy equals good and national equals bad because of Democrats. And that might also uh, reflect the bifurcation um, and the strategy that we see Republicans using. So um, on the one hand, they want to blame Joe Biden for the national economic conditions, um, and they want members of his party um, to pay the price for that at the polls um, in this election, but they also want to take advantage of uh, the things that are going well for the economy at the statewide level, particularly for the incumbent Republican governor who wants to hold that up as, as, a, as a shining record of achievement to say that, you know, based on what he's done for the past four years, he should uh, be allowed to, to continue to serve in this position for another four years. She says there's a big debate among political scientists about people who vote based on their own individual economic situation versus what's going on around them, the latter something she tends to agree with. So for instance, if you are unemployed, but the economy in general is doing well, 
you may not blame elected officials for that. Um, and you may not penalize elected officials for your own state. Similarly, you could be doing well economically, right? And you might be able to afford and withstand the high gas prices and the high food prices, but you are very much aware that people are hurting in your community. And so if you see that happening, you still may take a very negative view of the people who are in power, um, particularly the president um, of, of the United States. And that's probably not gonna work well with the president if, if he's running for re-election. And, 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 and that, that certainly wouldn't be uh, something that members of his party would want um, sort of, you know, hanging over their heads as they try to run for re-election as well. And that's one reason Kemp is ahead in the polls. But it's a different story for Herschel Walker, who has been running a campaign plagued by controversies and gaffes and a failure so far to succeed in his economic message that Warnock and Biden have led to a bad economy. Gillespie, the political science professor, says one reason is incumbency for Warnock. Herschel Walker, unfortunately, because he hasn't held office, can't take uh, credit for the favorable economic conditions in the state because he's played no role in helping to shape them. Uh, you know, what he and the NRSC are going to try to do is to say that national Democrats have created an adverse economic environment that's going to make it really difficult for Georgians to do business or for Georgians to be able to live comfortably. Um, and so they shouldn't be allowed to be in charge um, of, of making uh, uh, macroeconomic policies that you know could increase inflation, could drive the country into a recession. That that's the line that I would expect them to make. Warnock's campaign received a much-needed boost last week when the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act, a sweeping piece of legislation that tackles everything from climate change to health care, including several proposals Warnock championed. That includes lowering prescription drug costs for seniors on Medicare to a ceiling of $2,000 a year and a cap on the cost of insulin at $35 a month for Medicare recipients. Now, the bill we're about to pass will rightly strengthen health care access for millions of Americans. But how do we justify doing that while leaving the hardworking families in Georgia who gave us this power in the first place and the other 11 non-expansion states in the cold? My amendment would simply extend the same subsidies to them. Madam President, if in this bill we can extend tax relief to hedge fund managers, then surely we can extend tax credits as a lifeline to the working poor. But other efforts, like that proposal to close the Medicaid coverage gap in states like Georgia, failed. Even with the major policy victory, Hobart, the Republican bolster, says it'll be a tough road for Warnock because of how unpopular Biden is. I think that what, what voters are looking for, less so than really the specifics in terms of um, what is Walker going to do differently on the economy if he's elected to the Senate, but instead they just want to know they have confidence that he is someone that's going to go there and, and fight against um, you know, Biden's policies because they don't like him. Right. And, and that's the biggest challenge for Warnock is he's got to find a way to win these 10 to 15 percent of 10 to 15 percent of voters who, who disapprove of Biden. And, and if Walker can convince enough of those to vote for him because, hey, he's not going to do what Biden's doing, that that's the winning formula for him. So it, it's a little bit, you know, the, the calculus in, in federal races 
And that's why they've become almost parliamentary is a little simpler than it is for, for state level and especially gubernatorial races. For his part, Walker hasn't really talked much in detail about economic policies in his race so far, though he did hold two recent press conferences attacking Warnock for supporting the reconciliation bill. Walker trails Warnock in the polls by a wide margin at this point, according to the polling website 538's average of the race. Stacey Abrams is also behind in the polls, but she has a more difficult task ahead of her, convincing voters Georgia's strong economy could be better in a different way if she's in charge. In an hour-long address Tuesday night, Abrams painted a bold picture for how she would oversee the state's multi-billion dollar economy and blasted Republicans for what she says is not investing enough in Georgia during its good economic times. Georgia, we have the resources, we just need the leadership to get it done. Once again, Brian Kemp's poverty of imagination has left too many of our people saddled with debt or excluded from opportunity. Much like Kemp, Abrams says the record surplus that Georgia has enjoyed should be returned in part to taxpayers through a billion-dollar refund, but the rest should go towards addressing inequalities in things like education and housing and other ambitious goals. For the past 20 years, Georgians have been trained to believe that we can't afford to do what's right that solving the big problems and making bold choices won't work. But when we have been bold, when we have been brave, we have been the best. That means free technical college for Georgia students and boosting need-based financial aid for other college students and an equally bold plan to pay for it without raising taxes. My administration will fund the empty need-based financial aid program by using lottery reserves to seed this fund. But I know these plans for technical college and need-based aid are only as good as our ability to pay for them long-term. And that is why I am calling for a constitutional amendment to allow sports gaming and casinos in Georgia. This will serve as a permanent source of revenue to underwrite broader access to education. We can afford it and we must do it. That amendment would require a heavy lift in the legislature and to get on the ballot in a future of general election, but it's the kind of swing for the fences idea that Abrams needs to break through Kemp's messaging for the economy in Georgia running smoothly. And of course, for Abrams, everything comes back to Medicaid expansion, whether it's boosting educational spending or fixing rural broadband. I will do everything I can to close the digital divide in rural Georgia because we cannot call ourselves a leading state if we don't lead everyone forward. For Georgians to make progress, to secure rural Georgia's future, and to help those of us who live in the metro areas, we have to be in this together. And that is why we must expand Medicaid immediately. Republican and Democratic governors have accepted the benefits for their states, but not here in Georgia. We are second in the uninsured and 48th in access to mental health services. Medicaid expansion will pour billions into the state's broken health care system for pennies on the dollar, $3.5 billion every single year. 
The 2018 governor's race was a very policy-heavy battle between two very effective campaigners who excelled at reaching past their respective parties' bases to provide their vision for the next four years in Georgia. This time, both candidates say the stakes are even higher. This November, we will set course for the next decade, for the next generation. We can choose an economy that serves all of us or build off of the backs of so many to support so few. Our next governor will deploy the largest surplus in a generation, but will it go to our future or to his friends? So in these final 90-some-odd days, pay close attention to how Georgia's candidates for Senate and governor talk about the economy. Try to go beyond the blame and attacks on their opponents and see what visions they have for Georgia's future. And remember, it's the economy, stupid. Battleground Ballot Box from Georgia Public Broadcasting is produced by me, Stephen Fowler. Our editor is Josephine Bennett, our engineers Jay Cook, and Jesse Neiswanger wrote our theme music. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, Sometimes, you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.